listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The headlines today about the largest COVID outbreak in a long-term care facility on Oahu is the latest area of concern for healthcare officials. Hilton Rathal, head of the Hawaii Healthcare Association, says that uh, the more than 70 cases at the care center of Honolulu is a challenge because of the restrictions on how the FEMA staff flown in to support our healthcare workers at hospitals can be used. The situation is troubling, but so far there have not been major uh, fatalities like those we saw at the Ukyo Okutsu State Veterans Home last year. Rachel hopes the worst is over. The outbreak comes on the heels of a worry about a potential shortage of medical-grade oxygen. Rachel says it took a Herculean effort in our community to avert a crisis, and he credits the two oxygen producers, Air Liquide and Matheson Trigas, for stepping up production and for Matson for prioritizing shipments of additional oxygen containers to help ease the shortage. Within a period of about a week from when we first became aware of this pending crisis, that we're able to confidently say that we had averted the crisis and were able to bring in enough or produce, either produce or bring in enough oxygen for all of the medical needs in Hawaii. Which So it was, again, a fantastic effort by a lot of people, public, private agencies, state, federal government, um, to avert this crisis. And we're now in a much, much better place in terms of ensuring that we do have sufficient oxygen supplies in the state. And when we met yesterday with the working group that is working on this, we're working now on some better predictive modeling for any subsequent you know, events that might happen to ensure that we have better transparency about the use of oxygen and the supply so that we don't have to run this incredible fire drill that we had to do at the end of last month. And we are seeing our numbers come down somewhat, but um, a lot of our facilities are still stressed. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So as of today, we have about 282 COVID patients in our hospitals, which is a lot better than it was at our peak, which was well over 400. But despite the fact that COVID numbers have come down, that still that number today is still fairly close to the peak we had in August of last year. So it's a lot better than what it's been, but it's still a lot of patients. And what we also have going on is, for whatever reason, our hospitals are really full. So they are, real, they are still very, very busy across the entire state. Just yesterday, for example, we had two of our hospitals that had more patients in their, in, in their hospitals than they have licensed beds for, so, and which is, you know, typically we operate under our capacity. But the point is that even though the COVID numbers are down, there's still, you know, again, 280 is still a lot of COVID patients, still a lot of care that's being provided. And then in addition to that, we do have all of the other types of patients that we would normally see. We've got the heart attacks and the strokes and the joints and the all of the you know sicknesses and illnesses and the childbirths that you would normally get. So there's a lot of activity still going on in our hospitals, and our hospitals right now are as full as they have ever been, even though the COVID numbers are down. And we have seen the news out of the Department of Health, you know, that there are some clusters uh, in nursing homes, nursing facilities. In, in schools, you know, we've got, uh, I think, a, a number of young people, children that are uh, being treated for COVID uh, in the hospitals. But uh, how do we address the outbreak in the nursing facility? Uh, the care center of Honolulu, I know, has a large number of 
positive cases. Yeah, that that has been a real challenge. And unfortunately, that's been one of the largest outbreaks we've had in a care facility during the entire pandemic. And this is despite the fact that we have a very high proportion of both residents and staff vaccinated in that facility. Now, not every resident is vaccinated, not every staff member is vaccinated, but it just shows you how how dangerous the, the COVID variant is and how even with very high vaccination rates, you can still, still get these outbreaks. And they had very, very good protocols in place just like all of our care facilities do, our long-term care facilities do. They have been working very, very hard to manage this, but for whatever reason, they did experience a significant outbreak, which really stressed that facility. Now, we were very fortunate that we were able to get FEMA funding to bring in a large number of staff into our hospitals. We initially got funding for about 550, and then it went up to 650, and now we're even looking at higher numbers. So... And we have approximately 650, um, actually, we actually have almost 700 staff on the ground right now, FEMA-funded staff on the ground at 18 different hospitals across the state. To uh, These are nurses, respiratory therapists, and other type of clinical workers to help support our hospitals. There, unfortunately, though, with the FEMA funding, there are restrictions on how you can use those personnel. So while we've got a lot of personnel in the state that are helping our hospitals and are absolutely critical, because of the restrictions in terms of the funding and the way the funds are used, we cannot take those staff or move those staff from an acute care facility to what we call in a post-acute care facility or a long-term care facility like, like the uh, care centers of Honolulu. Now, we have been trying to get some additional funding to bring in additional staff to support not only Care Centre of uh, Honolulu, but our other long-term care facilities as well. But it is very, very challenging, the, again, just because of the, 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 stip, you know, the requirements or restrictions on the type of funding and the allocation. So while, for example, Department of Health has a lot of money that they've got from the federal government, all of those monies are earmarked for certain initiatives, certain projects, you know, testing, vaccinations, other type of activities. And so they can't just, you know, take some of that money and use it for other purposes. So we have been trying very hard over the last few weeks. We're very appreciative of the money we got from the federal government through FEMA to support our hospitals. We've been working very, very hard to try and get some additional funding for our long-term care facilities. But despite a lot of efforts, we've not been successful in figuring out how to, you know, or to tap into another source of funding to support our long-term care facilities. So this has put a real stress on places like the, uh, this particular facility here, Care Center of Honolulu, and the, the staff over there, just they all deserve medals for what they have been doing and for what they have been going through in the last couple of weeks because a lot of their staff have been out sick, they've been, you know, they're either COVID positive, they're under quarantine because they had close exposure. So it has been an incredible challenge for that that um, that team, and we have been, you know, we have been supplying them with additional PPE. We've been providing, been able to find some additional staff to come in. But you know, there are some staff who may be available, but don't want to work in a center that has a COVID outbreak. And so it has been a challenge to get them the resources they need. You know, uh, I believe there was one facility, the Hilo Extended uh, Care, that also saw a, a cluster there. 
Hilo Hospital is, is stressed as well. We had some lessons learned over at the Akutsu Veterans Home with a very high you know, fatality rate early on in this pandemic. And uh, I don't know what the numbers are for the care center, but certainly even with vaccinations, it, it just sounds like they're stressed. Well, they have been very stressed the, because a number of staff either were ex- either tested positive or were exposed and therefore had to be quarantined. Now, there were, I think, uh, six residents from that facility who ended up in hospital, even though most of them were vaccinated. I, I'm not aware that there's any deaths from that facility, which is, which is good to know if that does hold true as a result of this outbreak. But in terms of good news, the, the number of the staff who did have to go into quarantine because they were either positive or had a close contact and had to go into quarantine, they um, are now being freed to come back because they've gone through their period of quarantine. So the, while it was incredibly stressful for a couple of weeks, it looks like, fortunately, we're through the worst of it. Now, the other thing is that because they did experience an outbreak, they were not accept, accepting new residents. You know, so their counts did not go up. They didn't have more residents coming in. And prior to this outbreak, any resident coming into our long-term care facilities does get isolated for, you know, 10 to 14 days anyway, just to make sure that they, you know, they, they, they are not COVID positive when they come in. You know, there are all these screenings that go on. There's all these uh, protocols, infection control protocols that are going on. This facility was doing a great job of doing all of that. But despite all of those, there's still what they still experience this outbreak. But again, we believe that through the worst of it and the staff are starting to come back um, as they get released from their from their quarantine. Can you say anything about the hospitalization of the children? While we are seeing an increase in the number of COVID exposures for children in the state, we're very fortunate that we're not seeing a material number of hospitalizations from uh, for pediatric or, ch- or children being sick and ending up in hospital. Now, there are some states that have had some fairly significant increases in pediatric or, or hospitalizations for children. But in Hawaii, when we looked at our numbers yesterday, when he had two, if I remember the numbers correctly, it was either two or three pediatric patients or children who were in our pediatric intensive care units across the whole state. Now, that's, that's pretty good, the fact that we only have two or three. And so while there are some outbreaks being experienced in some of our schools, the good news is that those outbreaks are not resulting in a significant number of hospitalizations for our kids. And we are hoping or we are very hopeful that perhaps later in October or maybe November that the FDA will provide emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. So we are gearing up to be ready for that because if we can immunize um, you know, at least our 5 to 11-year-olds, you know, the ones who are in school, because 12 and above are already eligible to get vaccinated, so if we can also vaccinate a significant number of our 5 to 11-year-olds, and it's a smaller dose that they, you know, the mm-hmm. children get because they're much smaller body mass, obviously, um, so they get a much smaller dose. But if we can immunize a significant number of them, then that will help dramatically as well. But again, fortunately, at least in Hawaii up until now, 
we have not seen a material number of COVID hospitalizations for children. Okay, well, that's the the other bit of good news. But um, all right, and then uh, any other shortages that that you're aware of at this moment? Well, the only the only other thing we're experiencing a shortage of is uh, what we call the monoclonal antibody, which is the drugs that are used for mm-hmm. someone who um, is test positive for COVID is not sick enough to be in hospital but is still at high risk for ending up in hospital. And if they have mild to moderate symptoms, they can be treated with these drugs that are called monoclonal antibodies. These drugs are highly effective at keeping people out of hospitals. They're highly effective at reducing the severity of symptoms. Now, this is, again, for people who are positive and who are not sick enough to be in a hospital. Do do you anticipate that that we'll get enough of a supply? Just last week, the federal government um, went through a centralized distribution system. This week, for example, we were allocated 680 vials of this drug across the entire state, but we had requests for about 1,500 vials. So we only got less than half of what we had requested. So we're certainly going to use everything that came in. The last of these shipments for this week are actually being delivered today. And next week, while we got 680 allocated to Hawaii this week, we only have 600 allocated to Hawaii next week. So for the immediate future, at least, we don't have enough of these monoclonal antibodies for everyone who needs them, which is frustrating because they are only useful in these seven or 10 days after someone tests positive. So once you've gone past that 10-day window, you know, they're not effective. So if you miss that window because the drug's not available, unfortunately that, you know, some of those individuals who could have gotten this drug, if we don't have enough, may end up in a hospital, which is not a good thing. That was the Hawaii Healthcare Association's Hilton Rathel giving us the latest update on medical shortages as we try and manage the treatment of COVID patients in our long-term care facilities and in our hospitals. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Anita Hofschneider has a story about how Hawaii can fill in the gaps in national COVID data about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Good morning, Anita. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so your story is interesting because I was hearing about uh, groups in our community that I hadn't heard about, you know, about the numbers during this COVID crisis. Yeah, you know, as we know, I've been writing a lot about pandemic, racial, and ethnic disparities, you know, for the past year and longer. Um, And so this study was really interesting because it was published by the CDC um, and written by, um, you know, many uh, scholars in Hawaii, including current and former uh, staffers at the Hawaii Department of Health. And um, what they did was really take the most detailed look yet. Um, at the racial and ethnic disparities in Hawaii's pandemic. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the ways in which um, Asian Pacific Islander communities have been really hard hit, and more recently how the Native Hawaiian community has seen a rise in cases. Um, but what was really interesting about this was not only did it kind of affirm a lot of what we, we saw last year, but we also got to see what was happening with 
with more specific communities. Um, um, for example, it had data on the Korean community, the Vietnamese community, um, the Tong community, Fijian community. Um, and it really was uh, fascinating. And when I ran this paper by some scholars on the mainland, they were super impressed because um, on the mainland, there's just a real challenge in getting really specific data about Asian American Pacific Islander communities and COVID in a lot of places. And so they really said that, you know, what hope East Bloom could really be a model for other places. Yeah, because, you know, you hear the uh, Pacific Islander category and the uh, Asian American category, but when you drill down and kind of deconstruct and see, you know, what's really going on, you know, here in the islands, um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And what people are telling me, and by people, I mean researchers and community advocates, is that it's really important because if you are, for example, trying to figure out how to address COVID and you know that it's a really high rates in the AAPI community, then that's good to know. But it would be better to know if you know more specifically which communities in there are experiencing those high rates because there's such a multiplicity of languages and cultures and different you know, ways in which the virus might be spreading in those communities, different community interventions that you can do. And so what, what Hawaii has been doing was since they disaggregated um, data last year in response to community calls to do so, um, they've, that's allowed them to say, oh, these communities are um, getting really hit hard and, and to have more of a focus on, um, you know, translations or funding or whatever might be needed at that time. And we've been hearing a lot about the Marshallese community, but um, I, I didn't realize that the Samoans had the highest, second highest COVID day re, de, uh, death rate. Yes, and, and this is looking at this particular uh, point in time. So from the like from March 2020 to February of this year, so it is a really large part of the pandemic. And so, you know, seeing how the Samoan community has been affected has been really important. Another thing that was interesting was. Within the Asian American categories, we already knew that Filipinos had a relatively high COVID rate. But what we also saw from this study was that uh, Vietnamese also had a relatively high COVID rate. And that was something that I had actually heard anecdotally, but we had never seen data before. So it's helpful to kind of have this. And so it can help guide reporting and responses. And the other thing that struck me was that when it came to funding, let's say for the Native Hawaiians, that the Samoan community didn't get much money, but then the Hawaiian groups shared some of their money just because, you know, the, the need was there. I think that that was something that, you know, one of the community advocates that I spoke to, the, the point that she was trying to make was that, you know, when you give money to like a broad category, NHPI, the Native Hawaiian community is really large and has a lot of needs. And so the Pacific Islander communities needs might not be as recognized or as supported. And so, you know, she she likes the idea of separating out someone so that, you know, you can address what's happening in that community. And so she, yeah, it was interesting how she said that that last year, Native Hawaiians generously shared um, pandemic funding. Um, but it's something that, you know, I think that uh, some advocates hope it you know, doesn't necessarily need to be based on generosity, but just on knowledge of what are the needs and how can we best address them. Yeah, well, fascinating story on the data that has been uh, gathered so far and uh, the breakdown. But thank you so much, Anita. Thank you. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's reality chat. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HBR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years of serving Hawaii businesses and homeowners with a range of air conditioning and refrigeration products, supplies, and tools. CostcoHawaii.com. HPR is seeking candidates for a multimedia producer to oversee production of on-air promos, live music events, and other content for broadcast and digital platforms. If you have experience in audio recording and production, if you're well-versed in audio capture and storage systems, and have a love for public radio, we would love to hear from you. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now. Open September 16th, honolulumuseum.org. You're listening to The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're remembering longtime Hawaii entertainer Al Harrington, who passed away on Tuesday. He helped define Hawaii's entertainment industry in the 1970s and 80s, performing for years as the star of a long-running Polynesian dance review show at the Hilton Hawaiian Village in Waikiki. Take a listen. You explain to her the importance of this dance. Hey. Is Japanese good? Good. He's German. He is Mama Japanese. Mama Japanese. Yeah. Papa, tourist. In addition to his regular show in Waikiki, Al was cast in several roles on television, his most memorable being Ben Kokua on the original Hawaii Five-0. It wasn't long before he became a household name in that era, and as a result of his popularity, he earned a very specific moniker. So for today's Backyard Quiz, what was Al Harrington's nickname? Call 941-3689 or 877 877- 941-3689, if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Drums of the islands you're beating in my heart. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NairitHawaii.com If I should journey across the deep blue sea, I'll never forget. 
forget these coral shores Drums of the islands, I hear you calling me And I'll return forever yours I love each valley, each grain of sand, each hill The flowers, the music of the isles These are the things that I love and always will Though I may roam a thousand miles Dependence on imported food and the need for more sustainable agriculture in our islands is an issue that's been magnified by the pandemic. And when local families who struggle financially can't buy food or don't know how to grow their own, they sadly sometimes resort to desperate measures like stealing in order to eat or feed their families. Joe McGann, an Oahu farmer and farming instructor, says he's seen an increase in theft of ulu on Oahu recently. He's also heard similar stories from others in the farming community on neighbor islands. The Conversations Russell Subiono talked with him about the reasons behind thieves specifically targeting the fruit and how increased community agricultural efforts could help eliminate eliminate the need for stealing food. Earlier this week, you posted on social media that ulu theft is real on Oahu. In that post, you said that last year you caught a guy who picked your tree bare. Yeah. And then this year, you've already busted four different people trying to steal from your tree. In your recent experience... And from hearing similar stories from people in your network, how widespread is the problem of ulu theft? I, I, I really want to thank you for just asking these questions because mm-hmm. it gave all of us a chance to reach out and have some discussions. And mm-hmm. I, I see the problem happening on three levels. Most people think, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's the farmers. Uh, the farmers are getting, getting attacked. And yes, it is. Um, you know, I, I had a chance to reach out to Dr. Noah Lincoln. So he's on the Big Island right now. He's a professor working specifically with indigenous crops at the uh, University of Hawaii. And he shared on the Big Island, um, it's it's unreal what what, what they're dealing with. So this is just a story he shared with me that um, he had, wow, about 2,000 pounds stolen from his farm every year. It's sort of like they they know that's the place to go. So truckloads of people pull up and... He said he calls it a slow roll where they come in and they take a little bit, they take a little bit, they take a little bit. And he shared another story on on the Big Island out in Hamakua where about 9,000 pounds were stolen from uh, another farmer. It's it's unbelievable. So that's happening on the large scale. And more recently over at Castle High School here on Oahu out in Kaneohe, I I do some work over there with their ag instructor. His name is uh, Kumu Kaukahi or they call him Carlos. He's doing incredible work. He's also doing the natural farming with the students there. And he caught a couple of guys, went into the school, loaded up all the ulu, broke the branches, didn't really, you know, harvest in a caring, sustainable way, loaded up and just walked down the street, carrying the ulu off of the, off, off of the, the school farm. So that's happening with the large farmers. It's happening in their schools where education's happening. And even for us here, so we, we're a small family farm do mostly education and we grow our, what we grow, we mostly give away. So we mm-hmm. share with our Hana, we eat for ourselves. And it, it was really tough for us last year because we put a lot of work into caring for our trees, right? When, when it comes to the fruit, the fruit is just a reflection of all the work, all the care, all the love that happened in the previous year. So all that work, you don't really don't get to see when guys just come and harvest. So we put in all that work and I was actually on farm. I, I stepped away. I, I went to the opposite side of the farm and I came back and our tree was completely bare. Wow. And I, I went nuts immediately. I found our neighbor. So he allows people to come into his yard to pick ulu. He had 
told the guy, stay on that side of the fence. The guy didn't listen, crossed the fence, came onto our side, bowl ahead, took all the fruit off of our tree, went back. I was trying to pay our neighbor for the fruit. So it was interesting because there's ag theft on many levels. And, you know, even more recently, a friend of mine out in Papakulea, uh, sweet tea out in Papakulea, um, guys roll up into the neighborhood asking to pick fruit and they don't bring anything. It's, it's an interesting cultural thing that's happening as well, because, you know, our instinct, our cultural thing is to share. You ask, shoot, bro, we, we share with you. But even how we asking is, is different. You know, I think we are more comfortable with giving before we take. Mm-hmm. Right. Guys is coming, asking for take, but they're not reciprocating in terms of giving. So Sweet Tea was telling me about these guys rode into the neighborhood, asked if they could take, pick a couple ulu. Auntie was really nice. Auntie said, yeah, 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 just go take some. We'll just go leave a couple of these for Sweet Tea and her keiki. The guys ended up bowling the whole tree too. Took the two ulu that Sweet Tea wanted. They never bring nothing back for Auntie, right? We're not talking about money, but just, you know, whatever you get, right? You get fish, share fish, shoots, take some ulu. Whatever you get, it's, it's, it's the reciprocation, the communication, and how we doing things. What, I, what I'm realizing is that's brought to light a, a bigger a bigger thing that's happening in our communities that I think we need to address. It sounds like the ulu theft is just a symptom of a more widespread lack of respect or kind of a a self-centeredness that's kind of spreading. Why do you think they go specifically after ulu? Ulu is gaining in popularity. Before, not too many people knew about ulu. And for a lot of people, we never grew up with our traditional foods. Right. So even though we would have had a wealth of an abundance for a long time in Hawaii, it was ulu was never valued uh, as we starting to understand now so for a long time you know we didn't really eat it we didn't really care for it it was just in such abundance but more recently you know even whole foods has got on the ulu bandwagon promoting ulu as the next superfood and and for for more of us as we're getting healthier getting in touch with who we are reconnecting with their culture we are finding oh my goodness this ulu is ulu is such an amazing amazing fruit the way it grows the way it produces and and even the health benefits of ulu. So um, ulu right now is, is, is really getting popular. And I, and I think what, what's happening is all of the other things around ulu aren't happening, where it's just the taking of it. We're not talking about the stories of what it represents, right. how to grow it, how to share it. For some Pacific Asian cultures, they believe that if you plant two ulu when a child is born, those two ulu tree will provide enough sustenance for the rest of their life. So imagine that here in Hawaii or out in the Pacific, we actually planted two ulu every time we had a keiki. We wouldn't have any food problems. Right. There'd be enough ulu. We wouldn't have to worry about taking. We wouldn't have to be worrying about stealing. There'd be more than enough for everybody. So those other things around ulu, the, the stories, the how to grow it, how to share it, and how we can be in abundance with ulu. I think that's the nice opportunity that we have by having this discussion right now. I remember growing up, not eating ulu, not really knowing about it. It's interesting to see it come back into the mainstream now. Our show has heard from others in the farming community that agricultural theft is one of the most underreported crimes. Why do you think it's so underreported? The way the system is set up right now. Talk to farmers, some farmers in America, and uh, specifically in the California area where farming or agriculture is really big, and they have special task force. They have specific police units that monitor and go after ag theft. Here in Hawaii, at least, and specifically to Honolulu County, call the police. Oftentimes, they don't know what to do. They won't even take a report. 
you know, I've had my own issues with the police where we've had trespassing and we call and nothing happens. The guys keep coming back and the people who are doing it, they know it. So on one side, it is enforcement where we do not have a system in place to protect us. And we don't have the laws and the people watching out for us. So a, a lot can be done on the administration side, allocating the funds, allocating the resources, allocating, uh, setting up the laws so people who do get caught, that there is one penalty involved that's going to deter them. Right now, it's not set up that way. And I think a lot of what we see is because of the way the system is set up. In that social media post that I was talking about earlier, you said, we know you know how to harvest. Just call me. We teach you how to grow. Very similar to that classic teach a man to fish adage. If you were to have a chance to create a course for people looking for a more sustainable and legal method of harvesting food what would that look like Ooh, i i love that question because a lot of it actually has to do with us getting clear on our why you know we like do all these things but why now why are they harvesting ulu and that's the question i had to ask myself when i caught that guy stealing because i want it for i was nuts when I, I caught the guy he's right there and i had to check myself because I was getting nuts. I was ready for, you know, ready for troll blows. Mm -hmm. But then I looked at him and I looked back at my children and I saw his children behind him. And I saw, I saw myself in him. I saw one father that wanted to feed his children. And that's who I am. That's why I grow Ulu, <laughs> for feed my children. And he's picking the Ulu for feed his children. And if we realize that, why are we doing this, right? Why are we doing this? I, I really believe that at the root of it all, we want the same things. So it, it would have to start with our why. Why are we going to grow ulu? To feed our children, that's great. Some people plant ulu just to make money. You know, that's great too. But unless our basic needs are taken care of in terms of taking care of our family, taking care of ourselves, we can't even think about beginning to sell something. So if we're going to really create a course, it's getting clear on our why. And also taking a look at how to grow. Because I believe we've been lied to about what it takes to grow. We've been told it's difficult. We've been told it requires lots of land. It requires big machinery. It requires huge amounts of capital investment. It requires chemical fertilizers. And what we found, that's not true. So we'll start with our why, get clear on our why we want to do this. Introduce people how to grow. Grow in a way where we have a connection, where we have an understanding of everything in the process. What is actually in the soil? How do we feed the soil? How we care for the plant? Going through that whole life cycle. But not just growing, but also the harvesting, the sharing, the cooking. That, I believe, is, is, is the complete cycle that, that's missing right now, where some guys just grow them, they sell them to someone else, but they don't know what's involved in terms of cooking, eating, even coming down to sitting down and sharing it with other people. So if we can complete that whole cycle, I believe that's a critical component um, that I would love to build that. Thank you actually for helping me this, talk this through, because I would love to have even a program. If I could sign up for a program like that, where we talk to other people, get clear on what we want to do, understand the why of why we grow Ulu, take a look at how we grow it, every step of the way for every single growth stage and really bring it full circle with um, not only planting, caring for existing trees, 
feeding, fertilizing, going through sustainable harvesting, even, um, you know, how to prepare it because ulu can be prepared in so many ways from eating it green, eating it raw, making desserts, depending upon what stage of ulu you get in its ripeness, we can, we can make almost anything with ulu. But we, I, I don't think the opportunity, the education or the, the, the systems exist right now for us to be able to do this. So, um, those would be the three pillars of the course. Um, let's get clear on why we want to do this. Let's talk about how to do it and actually complete the circle of having the experience of taking one young ulu tree, preparing the ground, planting it, uh, feeding it as it grows, seeing a mature tree, being able to prune it properly, harvest sustainably so it can produce again the next year. Then taking that ulu, cooking it in the many ways possible, sharing it, eating it, completing that life cycle. And I think after that, that's done, then we can talk about the business side because all of our, um, our needs are taken care of. Our community is solid. We're feeding each other. We have the EK. We have the knowledge of how to do it. Everybody get enough. Then we can talk about the selling. So I think that's part of the problem too. Guys going straight to the selling, but all those other needs, all those other things that come with Ulu are, it's kind of kapakahi. It's all over the place right now. That was Oahu farmer Joe McGinn uh, talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about Ulu theft in the islands and what it would take to increase sustainable farming at a community level. today's Backyard Quiz, we're remembering the late great entertainer Al Harrington. He was born in American Samoa in 1935, raised in Honolulu by his mother and stepfather, Roy Harrington. Al graduated from Punahou, where he shone on the football field and on the stage. After graduating with a history degree from Stanford, he returned to Honolulu, where he initially got work as a Polynesian dancer. He eventually got a job as a high school history teacher at his alma mater and was a professor at the University of Hawaii for a time. But the spotlight kept calling his name. He eventually became the star of a long-running dance review show in Waikiki and was featured in several television shows of that era, including the original Hawaii Five-O. His popularity earned him the nickname... The South Pacific Man. That was the answer to today's backyard quiz that we were looking for. Al remained in the public eye throughout the years, most recently in a reoccurring role on the rebooted Hawaii Five O. Harrington died on Tuesday. He was 85 years old. And our winner today was Dave of Manoa, who shared with us that he remembered Al because he knew one of his twin sons. Manoa rainbows, crimson sunsets that paint the sky. I love this land, the golden people, misty mountains, the roaring sea. I love this land, I know its beauty, I pray my sons will know it too. of my life a blush green valleys gentle trade winds that cool the day 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the Master of HR Management program is October 5th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Hi, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Outside of science fiction, you can't really travel anywhere in the blink of an eye. But NPR gets you close, covering the stories happening right now all over the world. You may not be able to teleport yourself, but you can support the news that takes you everywhere. No quantum physics required. Here's how to give. And thanks. Support HPR's fall membership campaign. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Artists of Hawaii Now is a new exhibit at the Honolulu Museum of Art, and the buzz growing around the show is that it will stimulate conversations around issues in our community. We talked to Taylor Chang, who co-curated the show, and we were also joined by one of the featured artists, Nicole Naoni. We have featured 18 incredible artists, 13 installations that each explore, like really pressing timely themes, social issues that we're facing and navigating um, in our community during this time. And it's a pretty, you know, boundary-pushing exhibition. Each installation is, you know, kind of pushing the edge of what's possible with the medium. And embrace. there's a lot of really inspiring pieces that embrace technology. And the Pico, the virtual reality experience, is one of those pieces that are that's breaking new grounds and using technology to explore this question of what is sacred. So the technology piece, then, is what's different that sets this apart from previous shows? It's one factor for sure. We're really embracing new media in this exhibition, and we're just really excited to be able to kind of showcase artists who are not afraid to embrace technology as a way to communicate their stories. Well, I happened to catch uh, that uh, Na'alehu Anthony was incorporating a lot of the uh, hokulea and his experience uh, with capturing the story of the voyaging canoe in, in, in a piece as part of the exhibit, and that was kind of fun to see. Yeah, that's um, Holomua, his piece. is It's a really moving piece that is very striking when you enter the gallery. And I've heard lots of good buzz about the Mauna Kea exhibit. It's so, Nicole Naoni, uh, tell us about the concept and how you folks uh, were able to pull this off. I'm actually a third of, of the artists involved in the piece. The other, the other two artists are Christopher Kuhunahana, who's a, a filmmaker, and uh, Lenny Kila Manuel, uh, who's a, a kumuhula and a longtime activist. And um, a lot of what we wanted to recognize was the museum itself and where we were and who we would have access to speak to. And with our own, uh, with our own experiences with Mauna Kea, there, there, uh, there seems to be a lot of disconnect between who you get to talk to. And even in terms of um, the media now, a lot of media gets filtered through your own personalized algorithm where people who watch Fox News will only see things from Fox News. And we were noticing that uh, no matter how many things that we did in terms of our our protection of Mauna Kea and the building of the the 30 meter telescope, you know, in 2014, Lenakila, with his physical body, shut the groundbreaking ceremony down. And this past run, uh, Chris and I put our film on hold and went and lived there in in 2019. But we still collectively noticed that there was still a disconnect between people who just absolutely did not 
understand uh, the reasoning behind that. And there was a misconception that it was ancient Hawaiian or the, the left leftover remnants of this ancient Hawaiian community um, that was against technology and against science. And so our piece wanted to uh, address that and, and uh, allow to, to be in collaboration with the museum in a way that we could speak to people that we don't usually get to speak to in our, in our own co- uh, respective spaces. Now, I've been up to Mauna Kea, but I've been told that what you've been able to do with the virtual reality aspect of this exhibit really does elevate, you know, the experience of being up there and, and you get to understand yeah, more of what the mountain is about. I mean, I think that the mountain means a lot of different things to different people. For us, it was about the exploring different perspectives and showing more of a clear picture when you get into, you know, the discussion of the the TNT and all of the telescopes versus the people that actually live on the island. You know, if you're talking about the telescopes, you're talking about one perspective, literally. You know, you're you're in a space and you're only looking up and you're only looking at stars and what happens to the ground, for example you know, coolant leaking into the water table, which has happened, that's disregarded and and, and assumed as something that is, you know, just a necessary evil in order to be able to look in one direction. In our piece, we wanted to acknowledge how wonderful and important that one direction is, but also provide the rest of the view. And, and that was the point of our filming in 360. And Taylor, you know, you have a background in filmmaking. You're a storyteller. You know, what was it like for you when when you saw that uh, exhibit? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's incredibly inspiring how how courageous Nicole and Chris and Lanakila have been in the creative process to, you know, for the first time, use 360 footage of a time lapse of the land base that they're showcasing in this piece. They're exploring the mediums in in ways that hasn't been explored before. And at the same time, they're bringing such a sacred place and and communicating that uh, through technology to a community in ways that hasn't really been done before. So, I mean, as a filmmaker and as a storyteller and as a curator, it's it's incredibly inspiring to watch watch them as artists um, take risks and to be courageous and to kind of be pioneering in that way. So it's incredibly moved and proud to you know have been a small part of you know facilitating bringing the experience to the exhibition. And Nicole, what's it like when you work with others on a team creating an uh, an art piece? I mean, you know, because usually artists you know work solo, uh, but this is a little different. Before I answer that, I just wanted to even touch lightly on what. What Taylor just said, I, I really want to make sure that she doesn't minimize her role in this. I would say that Taylor is a curator and Marlene as well and plays such a huge role in us being able to tell this story because as a you know, my background's in sculpture and I have personally experienced trying to speak about Mona Kea or about Native Hawaiian issues in my art and literally been told that it was boring or that it shouldn't be in a gallery or that it, it didn't have a place in a in contemporary art. And so I definitely want to to make sure that we acknowledge um, how how important it is that the that the curatorial decision was made to include and take a chance on subject matters that, in my experience, are literally told no. And so um, yeah, before I even answer, I just wanted to make sure that got the that got mentioned. We definitely really really appreciate. 
Taylor being uh, being gracious and, and, and understanding how important uh, it was for the greater community to talk about these things. Well, I don't know who's telling you that it, it doesn't fit, but because it, it seems to me art is an expression of, you know, it's free speech, right? And uh, it's what inspires yeah. you. So that's interesting. But my question... Well, yeah, well it is. It is, uh, it is interesting. Yeah, the, the, in, I think indigenous communities uh, throughout, air quotes, um, America and all over the world really are uh, experiencing a strange sort of gray area in that we're not making artifacts, but our ancestors have artifacts, right? So when you're an, uh, an indigenous person who's alive, what then is your art? Is it Hawaiian art? Is it a Hawaiian artifact? Is it contemporary art? Is it contemporary art about a Hawaiian issue? Like it's, it gets yeah, it gets tricky. Sorry. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> no, and so getting back to the question then, I mean, most artists go solo, you know, you say you're a sculptor. And, and so what was it like uh, on this team project? For me, I mean, I'm a, I, I do large-scale sculptures. So that, that's, um, that is usually I've, I've had assistants and things that, that work with me on that. And then my experience as a film producer with Chris, that's also very much so about managing teams and then... Um, Lanakila is a, is a kumuhula. So it was kind of nice. I mean, it was essentially, I guess, like three three leaders in our own communities that sort of came together to work on something together. And I think we all um, have such a deep respect for one another's specific craft and talent that um, it really was just a lot of fun allowing allowing people to, to just do their thing and, and trust that uh, that they're going to bring their best. And that was definitely a a fun part. And Taylor, uh, share with our listeners what they need to know if they're interested. You know, how how do they sign up uh, either to do the VR portion of this or are there any special instructions right. during these COVID times? The museum is part of the Safe Access Oahu program. So, you know, you can just go on our website, honolulumuseum.org and RSCP to, you know, visit the galleries and, you know, experience these pieces in person. And for the PICO experience, um, we'll have in the gallery a sign-up sheet for, for audiences to sign up for the virtual reality experience. And, you know, you know, four people can enter the structure at a time. And, you know, we're running, you know, multiple show times throughout the day. And um, you'll just have to sign up when you are on site in the gallery space. Okay. And um, we really encourage people to you know, RSVP to be able to visit the museum and come early because we are anticipating a like high demand to experience Pico. Be really exciting. Are there any times when it's slower and fewer people? You know, that's a good point. I would say you know Thursdays. Thursdays actually, you know, are are a little bit quieter than Fridays and the weekends. Of course, I would say you know morning times tend to be you know, a slightly slower start, and then it kind of picks up towards the end of the day. But, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to anticipate. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like an incredible show. And uh, again, it runs till January. Yep. January 16th, 2022. So lots of time for people to uh, to get in to see it. Yep. Yep. And we're open from Thursdays to Sundays. All right. Well, thank you both so much for uh, for your time oh, today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Uh, keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. Thanks. Aloha. We were hearing from Taylor Chang from the Honolulu Museum of Art, who curated, co-curated the show. We were also joined by one of the featured artists, Nicole Naoni. Again, the show opened just last week, and it runs through January. 
And that's a wrap for us. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will sit in for an Aloha Friday show. If you've been inspired by something you heard on the show today, we'll call her Talkback Line, 808-792-8217. Record something for us. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.